You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today we are in Psalm 2. So if you would like to find that in your Bible. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in high laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome, everyone. It's good to be with you here this morning, a day when actually it seems like a lot of events are uh, are coming together, and some particularly meaningful for Evanston. So I'm, I'm curious how many, I don't know if I should call you out or not, but how many actually ran the race against hate this morning, showered and made it in time for church? Anyone? How many watching right now raced, did the race against hate? No, just kidding. Just kidding. That's awesome. You know, today, not only the race against hate in Evanston, but also Juneteenth and also Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to our, our fathers out there, our spiritual fathers, those that have invested in the generations to come. We are, we are with you. We are for you. It is good to come together to hear the word proclaimed. And we had been in a series in Mark's gospel called Jesus the Servant King and reached the conclusion of the first major section in Mark's gospel, Jesus' ministry in and around the region of Galilee. So we'll actually be taking a break from our Mark series to start our Summer in the Psalms series, a a series we're calling Anatomy of the Soul. John Calvin famously said this in the introduction to his commentary on the Psalms. He wrote, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which any one can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. He goes on to talk more about and kind of unpack that image, but suffice it to say that the Psalms give voice to the full range of human emotions and they give space 
for the vast array of our experiences, the pain, like the collision of life's joys and sorrows, even like a day, a day like today. And so with that in mind, we're calling this series Anatomy of the Soul. We're looking forward to hearing from other voices too, uh, preaching through some of these psalms over the course of the summer. And so uh, we invite you to chart along with us um, and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer here this morning. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. Lord, we recognize that this is a day of the collision of life's joys and sorrows. We recognize Juneteenth. Lord, we celebrate freedom and recognize that there is so much more still to be done. Father, would you help us as a community to further the cause against hate and would you use us as sisters and brothers, as followers of Jesus Christ to lead the charge. Lord Jesus, we celebrate, we thank you for the fathers in our midst. We recognize the wide array of fatherhood in all of its many facets. And we thank you for how even this psalm this morning points to the unique relationship between you, O God, and your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, you who inspired these words through your servant David, illumine your word. Help us to further grasp its significance, your love for us, and how you would call us to march forward. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. St. Augustine once referred to Jesus as iste cantar psalmorum, which means himself the singer of the psalms. You know, during our Holy Week series, if you think back a few months, we saw how the psalms, the Psalter, forms the songbook of the Savior. Mangrich is welcome. I just called out those that, I just saw if anybody did the race against hate today, but it looks like you guys did. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. The songbook of the Savior. That is especially true in Psalm 2 because it is both, as the New Testament writers came to see, it is both about Jesus and Jesus himself speaks through this psalm. It is one of the psalms most frequently quoted alluded to or even echoed in the New Testament. And to early Christians, it is the pinnacle of what we might call the messianic psalms. And so what I'd like to do in our time together this morning is explore first the link between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and how together these psalms set the stage for all that follows in the Psalter. Then Psalm 2 in its original context then Psalm 2 as it was then used and applied by the, the New Testament writers. And finally, the gospel according to Psalm 2. So if you are a fan of, if you're the type that likes to pull out a road map in the car, does anybody still do that these days? You know, we still have a whole bunch of those tucked into the, you know, the, the glove box and in the side, uh, you know, side doors, I guess, of our car. Who knows how old those maps are? But... If you are that type that likes to know where we're going, that's a little bit of a taste of that. And first of all, the links between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, I would be remiss if I did not refer you to Brad Anderson's message on Psalm 1. That was back in February of this year, if you can remember back that far. Um, If you have not, or if you'd like to, give that a listen again, 
because it does a great job of introducing us to Psalm 1 and setting the stage for and exploring some of the forms of Hebrew poetry, for instance, that I think will be foundational in our series here, the Summer in the Psalms. But let's read, reread Psalm 1 and notice some of these connections. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. When you look at both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, neither of them includes a title. And in some ancient manuscripts, these two psalms were actually linked together as one singular psalm. There is an unmistakable movement from the individual in Psalm 1 to the community in Psalm 2. Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the one, and Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all. Psalm 1 also presents two ways for individuals, and Psalm 2 then presents two ways for nations. But there is a, there is a ratcheting up, so to speak, like the stakes are raised, the way of the wicked in Psalm 1 becomes the banding together of what we might call a cosmic revolt against the Lord and his anointed in Psalm 2. The righteous person in Psalm 1 becomes personified as the Lord's anointed in Psalm 2, setting the stage for Jesus himself, who will perfectly embody the way of the righteous one from Psalm 1. Another further connection is that the word meditate in Psalm 1 is the same as the word for plot in Psalm 2. What the, while the mind of a righteous person meditates upon the law of the Lord, the minds of the wicked are fixated on overthrowing his righteous rule. Two other significant words are repeated, that of way and destruction. In, in Psalm 1 verse 6, the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And in a similar way, in Psalm 2 12, the way of the rebellious leaders leads to destruction. Together, these two psalms set the stage for everything that follows. They form the doorway to the entire Psalter. And the themes of these two psalms will come up again and again, as we will see throughout the book of Psalms. So, let's turn then to the original context of Psalm 2. And it would be, it's important, I think, to note that there are different types of psalms. We'll see these as we go. But this particular psalm is considered a royal or coronation psalm. A great example of what was involved in the coronation of a king of Israel is found in 2 Kings 11, verse 12. It says, Jehoiada brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. He presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him and the people clapped their hands and shouted, long live the king. Did you catch the sequence of events that take pla takes place there? You'll see some parallels even in this psalm here, this royal psalm that centers on the Lord enthroned in the heavens and warns the surrounding rulers and nations to submit to his chosen, to submit to his anointed king. You might have grasped this as you heard 
the psalm read, but there are four movements in the text, four stanzas, but movement is probably the best way to describe them, that are very, they form the structure of the book as a whole. Um, And each one includes three verses, kind of tightly woven. And that's what we're going to do as we look at the context here is these four movements and also noting the important voices that speak in each of these movements. So the first movement is the international conspiracy in verses one to three. In these verses, the surrounding nations and rulers rebel against the Lord and his anointed king. While there is no title necessarily for Psalm 2, Acts 4.25 sheds more light on this as the New Testament writers point to David and the way that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit in composing this psalm. And what happens right off the bat is that the, what we might call the, the neatness and the tidiness of Psalm 1, where it kind of like the old westerns where the good guys wore the white hats and the bad guys wore the black hats, if you know what I mean. That neatness and that tidiness is interrupted by the question, why? Why do the nations conspire or rage, as other translations put it? That same rhetorical question, why, could be extended to the rest of, the verse, the, the rest of verse two. Why do the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed? This question expresses outrage that anyone would have the audacity to shake their fist at God. And it sets the tone for everything that follows in this psalm. Why do the nations rage? What is uncovered here is an international conspiracy of the surrounding nations rising up against the Lord and his anointed. And it's possible that there was a historical setting involved here, perhaps even during the rule of Solomon. There could have been very real events, but the language points more broadly to any nation any ruler who rebels against God's rightful rule. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, verse two. Israel's kings were anointed with oil when they were crowned king. Remember back to that example that I read. This served as a, a symbol of their reign and being set apart for the service of the Lord. They ruled as vice-regents of the Lord on behalf of the true king. And so to rebel against this Davidic king is to rebel against the Lord himself who installs him, the Lord and his anointed. We then hear the voice of the conspirators in verse three, who declare themselves, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. These conspirators view coming under the reign of the Lord and his anointed as being shackled and imprisoned. Their desire is for autonomy and they view his rule as slavery. We'll come back to this, but this is ironic given the fact that the same terms in verse three are used to describe what God would do to liberate his people from bondage in Egypt. How will the Lord and his anointed respond? Movement two, the Lord's response, verses four to six. God mocks the supposed strength of these rebels and declares his purpose to install his own chosen king in Zion. Notice the progression in verses four to five. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger. 
and terrifies them in his wrath. That phrase, though, enthroned in heaven, is used not necessarily to express his distance from us, but the, his exaltation of his power and his glory. God's laugh, a laugh of derision, we might call it, is an expression of his power and his wrath. This is something that may strike us as difficult to hear as modern listeners. But the emphasis is on the greatness of God's power, the security of his position. No human revolt of any kind is a serious threat to his rule. I can't help but think about a line like that in A Bug's Life when I think it's the fat caterpillar that says, you all look like little ants way down there. Or maybe better yet, like when my son, who's four, tries to pick me up. I don't know if that's saying something more about my weight or his strength, but I think you get the idea. There is no threat to this, a revolt of any kind is no serious threat. And at this point, we hear the voice of the Lord himself, who says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. You know, I think this verse comes as quite a surprise, because when we think about this revolt and those who set themselves up against the creator, we would expect to find something about the way that he lays waste to those who rebel. And yet he says, I have installed my king. The Hebrew pronoun is emphatic, I myself. There is no doubt about who is in control. He has established his king. This is a divinely appointed office installed by God himself on Zion, which is practically synonymous with Jerusalem. This is also, Zion was prophetically central to the new creation, God's new creation. How is the installation of the Lord's anointed king a fitting response to the outright rebellion? That's what verses seven to nine reveal. Movement three, the Lord's anointed. In these verses, the Lord's anointed speaks and recounts God's promises to him in his royal decree. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. Think again about how, what that um, the coronation of a king looked like. The decree was most likely that, that document that was given to the king that outlined those covenantal, the relationship between God and the king and the responsibilities and the authority of the newly crowned king. And so there's the recounting of this decree. The king takes center stage. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Verse seven. There is a rich history in the Old Testament, first of, all, first of all, about the people of God coming to be called the Son of God collectively in the Exodus. That same term then is used of the king who represents the people and embodies them. In a sense, he adopts the people as his own. And the Lord, I should say, the Lord adopts the king as his son, as the representative of the people. Being God's son came with special privilege and responsibility to rule with justice and equity. And God's promise to David regarding his son Solomon in 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 is, I will be his father and he will be my son. In fact, I think this whole passage here is rooted in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
that is where this broader promise is given to David of an enduring name, an enduring relationship with God, and and an enduring lineage. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession, verse 8. Ask me shows that the anointed king rules with reliance on the Lord. The Lord promises universal reign and rule to the Davidic king. You know what? The rest of the Old Testament then goes on to picture the heir of David leading his people as being a light to the nations and the people actually streaming to Jerusalem, streaming to Zion, experiencing blessing through him. And yet verse The rest here, verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The rod of iron most likely refers to the king's royal scepter that was given to him that would symbolize his authority. And the nations in revolt are but fragile, breakable pottery in comparison to the Lord's power. We'll come back to that image as well. But in light of this, what will become of the rebellious nations and rulers? That's where movement four comes in, the critical warning. In verses 10 through 12, the nations and rulers are warned of God's wrath and the consequences of failing to pay homage to the rightful king. And this warning is laid out in a five-fold way. Be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear. That word for serve means to submit to his sovereignty. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son. This reflects the ancient practice of kissing the hand or the ring of the ruler by way of paying homage. Failing to heed these warnings means following the way that leads to destruction. But grace breaks through in verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Ultimate refuge for those who are weary and troubled is found in God himself. And the rest of the Psalms go on to develop this theme of refuge in a variety of terms, rock, fortress, deliverer, shield, dwelling place, and more. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, as you read on in scripture, you quickly discover how the ideals that are described in Psalm 2 are not realized. And the calls intensify among God's people, particularly among the prophets, for a ruler who would come who would be more than a mere man. And that's where the New Testament writers found a deeper significance to Psalm 2 and the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2 in the person and work of Jesus Christ. One such example is Acts 4, 25 through 28. In fact, I invite you to flip over to that passage, if you, if you will, for a moment. Acts 4, 25 through 28. There's a lot happening in this passage. Beginning in verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This addressed by Peter and John to 
the Lord himself. The early church came to see in these opening words in Psalm true a fulfillment of not only the, the kings and rulers being Herod and Pontius Pilate who conspire against Jesus, but then also the nations and peoples fulfilled by the Gentiles and the people of Israel who conspired against the holy servant Jesus, the Lord's anointed. At the same time, they recognize, verse 28, that all this took place even yet according to the sovereignty of God, that he was in control, and he is in control. In Paul's speech later in Acts 13, 33, he quotes Psalm 2, 7 to show that the resurrection of Jesus is actually his coronation. He, we, we have that phrase, you are my son, today I have become your father. This might be a little bit of a head scratcher for us because we think about the eternal relationship between the fa- God the Father and God the Son. But it is at the resurrection that God made, made publicly plain for all to see what has always been the case. You are my son, Today I have become your father. In Hebrews 1, 5, the, reader, the writer of Hebrews brings together Psalm 2, 7 and 2 Samuel 7, 14 to, to demonstrate Christ's authority over even the angels. He shows that the argument of the book of Hebrews assumes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and heir of David. Hebrews 1, 5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. In a similar way, a couple chapters later, in Hebrews 5, 5, the writer quotes Psalm 2, 7 to show that Christ has been appointed as the new high priest, here bringing together the office of king and priest into the right rule of Jesus. And then in Revelation, actually several echoes in Revelation Revelation 19.15, John shows how Psalm 2, 8 and 9 are fulfilled by Christ's reign at the end of time. We'll, We'll look at this again in a moment. And those who remain faithful share in his reign. Revelation 2, 26 through 27. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my Father. And so with these New Testament developments in mind, what I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at is the gospel, according to Psalm 2, the gospel. God's gospel begins with the one who is enthroned in the heavens, the one who created you and me, created us to be his vice regents, representing his reign and rule in his good world. But it was Satan's scheme to present the boundaries that the Lord set in the garden for our flourishing. It was his scheme to represent those or present those boundaries as shackles to keep us from true freedom. You know, we resonate deeply with the cry, like in the end of Braveheart, right? Freedom! That was a terrible, that was a terrible impersonation, but I think you get the idea. Or maybe, you know, in our nation's lore, phrases like, give me liberty or give me death. We glorify personal freedom. We find ourselves in a similar place today as the nations who rage in Psalm 2. 
Ours is a society that pushes true happiness through personal freedom, and the desire is to cast off the chains and shackles that are viewed as weighing us down and keeping us from becoming who we want to be, even if that means rejecting God's rule. Now, there's an important distinction that needs to be made here. Because terrible things have been done in the name of Christ that absolutely warrant the breaking of chains and the throwing off of shackles. A day like today reminds us of that quite vividly, about the terrible legacy of chattel slavery in, our, in this nation. Or you think about abusive forms of Christianity that have existed absolutely warrant breaking chains and throwing off the shackles, but that is not what is, what is viewed here. These are the chains and shackles that are perceived as holding, one's, holding one back from true freedom. But more than a mere revolt of some kings against Israel back in the day, this psalm, I believe, is an expression of the rebellion of the human heart against our Creator. Charles Spurgeon once said, we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. God's gospel continues, though, with God calling Abraham, as Ethan reminded us last week, the forming of his people for the purpose of bringing blessings to all peoples on earth. God establishes the kingship of David and his descendants in order to further that very purpose. But if you think about Israel's history, they are always threatened by the surrounding peoples, which is, I think, a reminder that there are those who hate, oppose, and rebel against God and against his anointed even today. Eventually, Israel faced exile. And in the aftermath, psalms like this one became, became filled with messianic hope, messianic expectation, The prophets recognized that this was no ordinary king and spoke of another in the line of David who would come. Jeremiah 23 verse 5 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. While no king or ruler lived up to the ideal found in Psalm 2, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the true king of the psalm. We have seen this even throughout the pages of Mark's gospel as well. Jesus came proclaiming what? The kingdom of God in Mark 1, 14 to 15. At his baptism, the father declared, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Words that any son would long to hear from his father. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Think about the temptation of Jesus. What did Satan offer him? All the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, if he would just bow down and worship him. Yet he did not short-circuit God's plan to give him what Psalm 2 says is the nations as his inheritance, the ends of the earth as his possession. And when asked, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter declares, spoiler alert in Mark's gospel, you are the Messiah in Mark 8. You are the Messiah. Messiah comes from this transliteration of the Hebrew word for anointed, and Christ comes from translating anointed into Greek. 
And so every time we call him Christ, we acknowledge his role as the Lord's anointed. As the Lord's anointed. At the transfiguration in Mark's gospel, the father declared, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And as we saw in Acts 4, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel conspired to put the anointed one to death on a cruel Roman cross. And yet even at his, even at his cross, there are clues of his kingship all along the way from the crown of thorns that is driven into his head, from the purple robe that they drape him with, to the mock scepter that they use not only to drive the thorns into his head, but also that they place in his hand and and kneel down to him. Many other examples as well. Church, Jesus rose again from the dead and is exalted at the right hand of the Father. He is enthroned and ruling on behalf of his people, as Ephesians 1 reminds us. And with all authority on heaven and earth, he has given us the charge of evangelizing the nations and the ends of the earth until the ingathering of the nations is complete. And Psalm 2 looks forward to that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in light of this, the gospel, according to Psalm 2, here are some, some takeaways for us to consider. That is, where the rubber meets the road for us today. Church, true freedom is found in being bound to Christ. By submitting our lives to God, we discover the bonds of relationship, the family ties that unite us all, that unite us in one body. Think about the marriage relationship, for instance. Some people might view a marriage as a set of restrictions. We use terrible terminology like a ball and chain, for instance. And yet, there is boundless freedom that comes in making this mutual commitment to one another. We are called to lay down our banners, our banners of personal freedom, our banners of self-sufficiency, and to remember the bonds that unite us in relationship with God and with one another. Romans 8, 21 says, the glorious freedom of the children of God. That is what we share in. By being bound to him, we share in his glorious freedom as children of God. True freedom is found in being bound to Christ. And what's more, we are called to rest in his sovereignty. God is not caught off guard by human rebellion. He is not distressed, dismayed, and neither should we be. The Roman emperor Diocletian in AD two, about AD 245 to 315, he was no friend to Christianity and once had an inscription made that said, the name of Christianity being extinguished. It's a pretty bold, uh, bold claim. God laughs at such absurdities and declares his eternal purpose to establish the throne of David forever. And no matter what is happening around us, God is still in control. Even when nations may rage, no human plot can thwart his plan. Certainly Herod and Pilate came to realize this as the one that they executed rose again. And someday all who oppose him will bow and realize the futility of their revolt. So let us participate, church. <clears throat> let us participate in the ingathering gathering 
of his inheritance. We have an obligation to tell others about Jesus. And this is the great challenge of the church today, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, making him known among the nations. In speaking on this very passage, the, the, the Harry Ironside once wrote, I never come to a missionary meeting, but I feel as though there ought to be written across the entire platform, ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Can you imagine if that just spanned the top of the platform here? Let us participate in the ingathering of his inheritance. But first, actually, let us respond to God's gracious invitation to worship Christ in reverence and awe. Notice that even the rebellious nations are, are offered an invitation. It is not forced, it is not an ultimatum. The invitation is to follow him rather than the way of destruction. And ultimately, whether we are saved or not depends upon how we relate to Christ, how we relate to the Son of God. John 3, 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Church, take refuge in him and experience his blessing. Grace breaks through in verse 12, and what others may view as shackles and bondage is actually peace and security and refuge in him. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed? Why do you? Why do I? Jesus extends his hands to you, not so that you will kiss his ring, but so you will see the nail marks in his hands. And he says, I did this for you. Remember that mock scepter that was used to drive the thorns into his head that was placed in his hand as they bowed down, as the soldiers bowed down in mock homage. One day he will come again as the conquering king. And Revelation 19, 15 to 16 says, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But now is the time of grace. Now the invitation is extended. Now is the time to freely choose to serve the true king. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for this timely word at the beginning of the Psalms that points to Jesus, the Lord's anointed. Father, I pray for anyone here that has not come to embrace, that has not responded to the invitation to believe, to worship you, Lord Jesus, in reverence and awe. Lord, would today be the day that they turn to you in repentance and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, would you move us out on mission? Remind us of the ties that bind us together and remind us of the freedom that we have in knowing Christ and being bound ultimately to him. Would you cause us through your gospel to be a part of extending refuge to all who take refuge, blessing to all who take refuge in you? We pray this in the precious and matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is risen and reigning and coming again. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.